Today we're continuing the story in 1 Samuel, and today we're going to see Saul continue to spiral and spin out further and further into sin, but even more than that, God is going to reveal to us the beauty and security and safety of His covenant and what His promises really mean for us. So if you are able, you know what, don't stand again. This isn't as long of a reading as last week, but it's still a pretty long reading, so stay seated, and, um, but let's intently listen together to God's inerrant word. This is 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramon came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And and David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I might hide myself in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked, leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, that it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, then kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, I would, not, would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. And so they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself, when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, then take them. 
Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And so David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times, on the seat by the wall, Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. And yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him, he is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, Well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to, for your, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And so Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way your word doesn't pull any punches and, and describes in detail the way sin affects us, the way sin affects the world, how dangerous it is, Lord. And in your mercy, you warn us of that. But you also, Lord, even more than that, you show us consistently the beauty of your covenant and what you have done for us in Christ. So we pray, pray Lord, that you would help us to see uh, that you are good, that you are merciful, that you never ask us to give up or sacrifice anything that doesn't cause death. 
so that you can replace it with things that bring life. And we pray, Lord, most of all, that you would help us to see the beauty of Jesus in this passage. So, Lord, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you haven't seen Avengers Affinity War yet and you don't want to spoil it, you might want to head to the bathroom right now. Fair warning. There's, uh, we just went and saw the movie the other day. Basic plot of the movie is the bad guy, the villain, Thanos, which his name is a play on the Greek word for death, which is Thanatos. Um, he is on a quest to capture all six of, what these, of these infinity stones, which are remnants of, of imploded stars from before the universe began. Each one of them has a special power over the universe, and to capture all six of them makes one a complete master over time and space and matter and everything so that you can command your will on the universe and recreate it in your own image. And what Thanos wants to do is he wants to kill half of the population of all the universe because he believes that only that will save the world from war and, and lack and starvation It's a perfect example of what we've talked about before, of an evil man doing evil things for what he thinks are really good reasons. Uh, And so as he goes after to find the most elusive of these stones, the soul stone that gives someone power over all the souls in the universe, uh, he goes to find this soul stone with his adopted daughter, Gamora, who happens to be the only thing in the universe that he truly loves. Uh, And to his... Surprise, he finds out that the soul stone requires the seeker to sacrifice the only thing that they truly love in order to capture the stone. And Gomorrah, uh, and she begins to laugh at Thanos because she believes that her bloodthirsty father is not capable of loving anything, that he's never loved anything ever in the whole world. And, and, uh, and so she's taunting him and laughing at him as Thanos turns around weeping, uh, resolved not to let his destiny to rule the universe slip out of his hands again, and he's, he turns to his adopted daughter and he says, he said, I ignored my destiny once and I can't do that again, not even for you. I'm so sorry, little one. It's not that Thanos didn't love his adopted daughter, it's just that his sin had twisted his heart to where he became willing to sacrifice even the thing he loved most in order to pursue his sin. And we talk a lot, rightfully so, about how faith requires a sacrifice. We talk about counting the cost of the gospel. We talk about how the central and basic Christian virtue is to die to self, to pick up your cross, which usually means, well, invariably, means that at some point in the Christian life, there will be a call to sacrifice, a call to give something up, a call to pick up the cross. What we also really need to do when we talk about that stuff is to also consider the fact that along with that, just as faith requires sacrifice, sin also requires sacrifice. But only one of them, only one of those sacrifices will lead to life, the other leads to death. And so really, this chapter is this stunning 
literary beauty, literally, uh, literary beauty of um, the narrative is, 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 is comparing these two men. Saul, who has uh, become so twisted in his heart that he's willing to make sacrifices of things, the, the, only, the things that are most worthwhile in life in order to pursue his wickedness. It's it contrasted with Jonathan, uh, who also makes a sacrifice. Uh, and through that, we're able to see the beauty of the gospel and the promises that God has for us. And so the big idea for us to consider in this, the thesis, is that both sin and faith require sacrifice, but only one leads to life. Both sin and faith require sacrifice, but only one leads to life. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, sin requires sacrifice. So what is it that Saul is willing to put on the altar of sacrifice in order to pursue his sin. Let me read again. Look at verses 30 through 33. Saul has has told Jonathan to go and get David because he's going to put him to death. And Jonathan challenges Saul. He says, what has David done to deserve death? What has he done? And then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, you perverse, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered his father and said, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. And so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. You know, I first read that, I thought, okay, this is a great example of how irrational sin is. Because in the same breath, Saul is saying, <clears throat> Saul is saying, we are working to protect your kingdom and your dynasty and your, your heritage. And then in the same breath, he hurls a spear at him with the intent to pin him to the wall and I thought, man, this is just a great example of the irrationality of sin, how a guy could do that, the same two, the, those two things in the single breath. But really, I think what it is, is Saul is just really being honest because what we do is often a lot more honest than what we say. And so Saul doesn't care about preserving the kingdom for his son. He cares about preserving the kingdom for himself, And it's not that he doesn't love Jonathan. It's not that he's so evil he doesn't love his firstborn son. It's just that the tragedy, the real tragedy of sin is that Saul's heart has been twisted to the point where he is willing to sacrifice anything that stands in his way, even the things that he loves the most. Jonathan speaks truth. Jonathan's got to go. You know, in my, my first experiences with ministry was counseling and ministering to men who uh, were severe, chronic, relapse drug addicts. That was my story too. And so God, you know, obviously put me in that situation. Uh, ministering to men, uh, particularly men, some women also, who were just not able to stay sober and always was... To the non-addicts that I knew, the people were always just marveled. They were just so baffled as to how it was 
and why it was that addicts were willing to seemingly sacrifice everything in life for the drug. Uh, we used to call it, we called it protecting the dope. <laughs> when the dope becomes the most important thing in life, then you are willing to give up anything else in order to protect it. But what surprised me as I began to branch out more into Christian ministry was the realization uh, that all of major counseling, all of really difficult counseling cases were all variations of a theme. The dope was always different, but the protection was always the same. And people were always often willing to protect the dope, whatever it might be, which is so sad, you know? It is so sad. Uh, You know, maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, okay, here we go again. Sin, 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 sin. Why are we always talking about sin? Even why are we Christians? Why are we keep being reminded how sinful sin is and how awful it is and how it can grab a hold of these other people? Um, you know who doesn't say that? You know who doesn't, doesn't say that is, is marriage counselors or pastors, people who work with, uh, also people who have been gripped by the, the power of sin and, and, and survived to talk about it. Because they all realize, we all realize that sin, um, drug addicts don't become drug addicts overnight. There's small incremental decisions that we make that lead us into the point where we are no longer in control and the drug is in control over us. And sin is the very same way. It is so dangerous. It is so subtle that God in his mercy wants us to constantly meditate on the real possibility of what could happen to us so that we will be on constant vigilance and alert to know how dangerous it is to know how easy it would be for us to slowly get to the point where we are sacrificing the things most worthwhile in life and not really even realizing what we're doing like Saul and so sin requires an awful sacrifice which faith faith requires a sacrifice too second point faith requires sacrifice. And one of the most helpful things about a crisis when you're in it is, uh, especially in counseling, is, is that crisis will always bring the truth to the surface. Saul's crisis over David brought out the truth in him, what he was really concerned about, his own glory. Uh, but in the same way, the similar way, Jonathan's crisis with Saul has brought out what's true about him. Look at, look at verses 12 and 13. Um, he also, before this, before this, you know, when, when David convinces him that his father really does want to kill him, Jonathan says, says to them, whatever you say, I will do. And then he goes on in 12 and 13 to say, and, and, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But it should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more. If I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now maybe that didn't sound like much. 
Uh, but Jonathan just went from practice to reality. Jonathan just went from the theoretical to the, to the real. Last chapter, we read about how Jonathan had symbolically abdicated his throne and gone all in with David by giving him his robe and his armor and everything. Jonathan was symbolically saying, I believe that you're the Lord's anointed. And he, he, uh, he showed that by giving him his royal robe, which was his, uh, the, the mark of his being the crown prince. He abdicated the throne in that. But here, in this chapter, Jonathan is now going all in. It's not theoretical anymore. He's just now is, he's making decisions to decide to place his allegiance with David that are going to be potentially costly to him. Think about this. By, by siding with David, by siding with the Lord's anointed against his father, Think of all the chips he just pushed in onto the table. Obviously, his, the kingship that he's giving up and all the glory and power and recognition and fame and luxury and, and everything that came with the power of being a king, that's obvious, but also he's endangering everything he's got, his family relationships, his marriage, his children, his career, his safety, and even his life as he goes against Saul and Saul tries to kill him. You know, it, I, I, so I read through this and like meditated on it. I was just awestruck at how Jonathan just went all in. He was literally, literally living out all those scary passages in the Gospels that Jesus talks about. Like this one <clears throat> from Matthew. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And those are heavy passages. Those are heavy passages. Jesus said that. that pass, this passage reminds me really of, I can't help but think about the people that I, that I serve with in China. When I go, to, I go to China every year in the beginning of the year and I serve with professors and staff and students who are out in the open in a hostile country running an op- a seminary of 200 people in a 650-person church. It's an underground church that takes up the 19th through 23rd floors of a skyscraper in downtown Chengdu. And here's the thing. The thing is that because it's illegal, at any minute, at any minute, the cops can roll in and arrest all of them or some of them and take them to prison for how long they don't know. They are every day, every day when they wake up and go to work, they are preparing to make these deep sacrifices out of their love for Jesus. It's amazing to think about it. 
one of my friends, John Cow, as you probably know, we pray for him often, is doing seven years in prison right now for just that thing. Lost his wife, her ability to see his wife, his children, his career, his savings, his reputation, everything he lost. And he's writing letters from prison, rejoicing in God, saying how wonderful it is to be able to minister in prison. Because that's his mindset. It doesn't make me just think of them, though. It really makes me think of all of us. It reminds us, it reminds me of all of us, because maybe the cross might be as radical as what they face in China. But the reality is that this touches everybody. Everybody who follows Jesus, everybody who loves Jesus will eventually find themselves picking up a cross. And the saddest, really the saddest part of the modern church today are all the little arguments and clever rationalizations within the church that try to convince people that they don't really have to do that. That it would be better for them to leave the cross where it is and to pick up their sin and walk with it. Crazy sad. You know, I said a few weeks ago that we think about this, we think about sanctification, we think about the cross that Christ will ask us to pick up. He says that you will suffer in this world if you follow me. And we think about it, in, we always think about it in negative terms. That's a harsh thing, and it is hard. It is really hard. But compared with, when we put it up against the fact that sin also exacts a more terrible sacrifice that leads to death, we can start to see in contrast the beauty and the safety and the security that God has engineered into calling us to sacrifice these things, calling us to pick up our cross. It is, again, God's mercy to us, his beauty to us. And that's because the last point is that Jesus promises that these sacrifices, that the cross will lead to life, will always lead to life. Listen, listen to the last part of what Jesus said in that passage that I read. Let me read it again. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Meaning the sacrifice of sin leads to death. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The sacrifice of faith leads to life. That's the big difference. Listen to... Well, look at this. I'm going to read, I'm going to read uh, verses 13b through 17. This is the most remarkable part of this passage, and the reason it's remarkable is because of the direction of the covenant. Listen, listen. The direction of the covenant and the direction of the promises being made. This is, these are the most important verses in the passage. From verse 13, second part of verse 13 through 17. This is Jonathan speaking, and he says, picking up where we left off, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made a 
made David swear again by his love, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Who's, who's asking for the protection there? Think about that. David is alone. He is hunted. He is without resource or power. He's got nothing. He's got the clothes on his back. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have any food. He's got nothing And here's Jonathan, the crown prince, with all the power of the kingdom coming to David in the middle of this field and saying, swear to me that you will protect me. Swear to me that your covenant promises will cover me. Swear to me that your covenant will cover my house forever. You know, there's this part at the end of, since we're talking about Marvel movies, at the end of Black Panther when... The king of Wakanda goes to the United Nations and offers uh, the world all of the technological, all of the, all of the wealth and technological advancements of Wakanda. And of course, up to that point, no one knows that Wakanda has any of this power, technological ability or wisdom or intelligence because they've cloaked it. And so a guy stands up and he goes, well, thank you, Prince T'Challa, but how is a third world country of shepherds going to contribute to the worldly system in any any way and he just smiles right because because we all know it's cloaked but they have power beyond the world's comprehension and that's very worldly of the world to think. What can weakness provide for us? What is there possibly that such weakness, such seeming insignificance could ever do for us? But it's cloaked power. The same is true. David has one thing that makes all of that other irrelevant. He doesn't need a sword. He doesn't need bread. He doesn't need nothing but the clothes on his back because he is the anointed of God. He is the Messiah of God and God has his power upon him. Jonathan knows that and he knows it doesn't matter what the world throws at him. It doesn't matter what happens that God will protect David and that anyone who has their allegiance with God's Messiah is set. They have all the power of God behind them and that is what we have in Christ. This is the picture of Jesus that we see in this passage. You know, this is what God wants us to know. Because we are in allegiance with Jesus, because he has brought us into allegiance with him, he wants us to know, first of all, that anything, any cross that he asks us to pick up is a putting to death of the things that produce death. Which means God is blessing us through that. Even though it's hard, even though somebody's got to pry our fingers off of it, even though sometimes he's got to let us sit and fool around with it long enough to get burned to see that it is truly death. But he is in his power of his spirit working always to convince us and to challenge us and to, to show us this is, this is death. I want you to let go of it so that I can produce and bring life in its place. But even more than that, even better than that, because we're in Christ, what Jesus has done for us as God's anointed was that he went through a sacrifice that we can never imagine 
Talk about losing house and home. Talk about losing everything. Glory of heaven to be mocked and brutalized and murdered by his own creatures and all of it so that he could bring us his protection and power so that, as Jonathan said, promise me that your covenant faithfulness, your chesed, it's a very special word in Hebrew that means God's everlasting, unbreakable love and, and, and protection will always be over. And Jonathan says, promise me that your covenant faithfulness will always be on me. Jesus has promised us his covenant faithfulness will always be on us. That he will protect us and our house forever. Think about that. Listen, if God says, if God who cannot lie, if God who created the solar system, the universe, everything, seen and unseen, if the God who has that much power promises us his covenant faithfulness, what can possibly hurt us? What can possibly be worth trading that out for? What can possibly be worth stumbling ourselves? If that's true, wouldn't we want to go all in to experience all of that, to have all of God's beauty and blessing and goodness as much as we could have as creatures here and now in the middle of this fallen world, knowing that the end of our story is perfection and beauty and power and glory and light. That's what Jonathan knows. And so for him to lay down the kingship, to lay down ultimate control and power of a, of a geopolitical powerhouse was a small thing because in comparison to what he truly had, in comparison <clears throat> to what we truly have, it was a small thing. It's nothing compared to what we have in Christ. You know, sometimes our... Let me conclude with this. Sometimes our struggles are against external things. And sometimes our struggles are against internal things, the indwelling sin that, that fights against us at every, every footstep. The besetting sin. The Bible says that we will be in this battle of flesh and spirit our entire life. Even Apostle Paul said that I can't do the things I want. I keep doing the things I don't want to do. Who will save me from this body of death? I pray, I thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that his salvation was all completely in what Jesus had done for him on the cross and that he was good. And so, you know, what Paul in chapter, Romans chapter 8 talks about the suffering that we experience, we automatically think he's talking about persecution. He's not. He just spent seven chapters talking about the power of sin in the world inside of us fighting against us, causing us to struggle and suffer. And so, you know, because of that, some of the people I admire most in the Christian life are the people who struggle with indwelling, besetting sin and never quit. They see it for what it is. They don't try to rationalize it. They don't try to explain it away as something that it's not. They see it as the cross. 
and they've never quit putting it to death. Even, even some, I know people who for years have struggled and never had relief. <clears throat> it takes years sometimes, decades. Sometimes those are the people I admire most who call sin what it is and fight against it and know that their salvation is in Christ. That they never give up. And that should be, should be in for all of us, we should look at that for whatever cross that God has called us to pick up, whatever sin we may be fighting against, to know that God powers us, that God, that the true... Uh, the true evidence of God's working and power in our lives is that we, are, we stand through that. We don't cut and run. We call sin for what it is, but we don't grieve and mourn in the depths of it because we know that our salvation is exterior to us, what Christ has given us so that we can rejoice. And only through that rejoicing can healing come. And it does. It does. And so this is all God's mercy to us. The crosses that he calls us to bear uh, are all against the backdrop of the gospel. And although we are called to sacrifice in the life of faith, we are only called to sacrifice the things of death. And all of it is God's mercy to bring us closer and closer into the beauty of the eternal world that we will soon join in absolute perfection. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word the power of it. Lord, the truth is, the truth is all of us, we are always tempted to believe things. We are tempted, Father, to follow our sin. We are tempted to protect our dope. And we're all in danger of, of, of unwittingly sacrificing things we love most in order to protect those things that you say will produce death in our lives, even if they are sweet at first. Lord, one of the best prayers I know is pray, Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the sugar of sin as well as its gall. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to meditate on sin in a healthy way so that we might see its destructiveness, see it as a warning in your goodness to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to pick up whatever cross you've called us to pick up, but to do it rejoicing, Lord, knowing that it is your mercy and grace to us in calling us out of death and into life. And we do it, Lord, against the backdrop of of the gospel of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for us so that we know our, our future is absolutely secure and certain in you. And that what you're doing, even in the here and now, is beauty and light. Help us to see that, Lord, so that we might rejoice in you and glorify you uh, and rejoice in the gospel and in our salvation as we ought, Lord. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.